Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to episode four of the Dead Pundit Society. My name is Adam Proctor. Joining me today is Eric Levitz. He wrote a fantastic piece for New York Magazine called The Case for Countering Right-Wing Populism with Left-Wing Economics. As some of you may have guessed, it's an intervention on the debate about how to win a majority to socialist politics. It's going to be, we're going to be talking about class. So there's a little spoiler for all of you. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. Just want to start off today's episode by thanking everybody for joining us. Thanks for listening. This is our fourth episode. We're still going strong. Got a lot of really great guests lined up. So thanks for tuning in. As I mentioned last week, I now actually have a Patreon account set up. You can donate to the show on a monthly basis. Uh, We have $3, $5, and $7 levels. If you are so inclined and you feel like supporting the show in order to keep it free uh, for the masses uh, to cover some of my overhead, I would really appreciate that. Go on over to patreon.com backslash deadpundits. That's patreon.com backslash dead pundits I hadn't planned on doing one so early but hey doing a podcast is hella expensive so I appreciate all the support that I can get as I said earlier joining me today to talk about the intricacies of class politics in fighting the xenophobic and racist uh, political environment in which we find ourselves is Mr. Eric Levitz Uh, this was a really challenging interview for me in some senses I mean I think Although you couldn't even slide a piece of paper between Eric Levitz's uh, political beliefs and my own. I mean, we're very similar in the kind of world we want to see and how we think we need to get there. Eric is a writer for New York Magazine. And so unlike me, he has to be in conversation on a daily basis with liberals and centrists. And so the strength of his position is that he takes these people very seriously. He doesn't simply dismiss their arguments, and I think we can learn from that approach to some extent. Um, Yeah, there were many points throughout the interview that I just wanted to stop and scream, you know, fuck Hillary, fuck the liberals, they're all insane, Uh, they're disingenuous assholes, and we need to take them down, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're going to like this interview. Uh, it's it's challenging. We take on a lot of hard topics, uh, but Eric responds like a champ. So yeah, without further ado, here's my interview with Eric Levitz. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining us today, I have Eric Levitz. He's a writer and associate editor of the Daily Intelligencer blog for New York Magazine. And he's here to talk with us today about his article that came out earlier this week. It's called The Case for Countering Right-Wing Populism with Left-Wing Economics. Eric, welcome to the Dead Pundit Society. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. 
We're excited to have you and talk about this miserable piece that showed up in Vox last week. For those who haven't seen it, uh, it's by Zach Beecham. Uh, it's called No Easy Answers, Why Left-Wing Economics is Not the Answer to Right-Wing Populism. Eric, tell us what's wrong with this argument. Sure. Well, uh, you know, there's a, a few different things you could say about it. Um, Beecham's argument is that not only are the kinds of policies that Bernie Sanders espouses uh, ineffective to prevent uh, or counter uh, the tide of right-wing nationalism that we've seen growing across the Western world over the last few years, but that actually there may actually be a, a correlation between generous welfare states um, and uh, right-wing populism. So he makes this argument. There's sort of, I think, five central points that he makes. Um, one is that many nations in Western Europe are home to both robust welfare states and right-wing nationalist movements. And in fact, um, there is sort of, as I just said, kind of a a rough correlation, at least uh, in some studies, that the more generous a European country's social safety net is, the more likely it is to have a strong nativist political party. And um, Beecham theorizes from this that, you know, when you take care of a white majority population's economic concerns and, and give them a certain level of economic security, they begin to prioritize other issues that are related sort of to cultural and social values and, and convictions. And this uh, makes it ripe for, uh, especially in the context of mass immigration, makes it ripe for right-wing nationalism. His second, I think, point is basically arguing that Jeremy Corbyn already tried Sanders' prescription for the British Labour Party, and it failed. You had, you know, new labor, whatever you want to say about it, on the substance. It retained power for a significant amount of time, whereas since Corbyn won uh, the leadership of the Labour Party, Labour's polling position has declined, and the country, you know, did support a Brexit campaign that was led by right-wing xenophobic nationalists. A third point that he makes is that far-right parties uh, don't actually, despite sort of this popular narrative, uh, derive most of their support from working-class voters. It's really the, the petty bourgeoisie, the small business owners, the you know well-compensated plumbers um, who really make up the core of far-right parties, and thus, uh, to quote him, um, the kind of voter uh, who's attracted to the far-right just doesn't care a whole lot about inequality and redistribution. So that's another argument for why left-wing economics are not going to win these people over. Right. Um, then two state-side points he makes. Uh, in last November's Senate races in the Midwest, <clears throat> you had populist Democratic candidates uh, in Wisconsin and Ohio, um, Russ Feingold, and I think, you know, more controversially, he calls Ted Strickland a populist um, in Ohio. But mm -hmm. anyhow, he, he labels those both as populists. They both pulled behind Clinton. And then uh, in Indiana and Missouri, you had Evan Bayh and Jason Kander. They pulled ahead of her. So this would seem to upset the Sanders position that if you go to the left of Clinton on economics, you'll do better with white workers in the Midwest. And then finally, um, he argues that, you know, because basically he, in his first argument, creates a problem in that if a larger welfare state correlates with a, a stronger right-wing nationalist movement, then it creates the question of why do we have President Trump in the United States where we have a, you know, rather uniquely weak welfare state uh, relative to the Western world. Um, and his argument there is that uh, the reason for both of these things is that in the United States, our, our racial history um, is, is so troubled, uh, and the right has so successfully linked redistributive economic policy with aiding undeserving, lazy, brown and black people, um, that actually if the left were to move, if, if uh, the Democrats were to move left on economics, not only would that not win over white working class voters, but it would actually plausibly uh, 
hurt the Democrats politically by reminding more white people, um, you know, just how little they want their dollars going to undeserving others. Um, so that's sort of, uh, I think, a, a fair summary of his argument. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's that yeah. was that was fantastic. Thank you so much for providing that uh, that that layout. Your article uh, does that in some detail as well, and folks should check that out for sure if you haven't read it yet. But let's let's rewind because I, I want to take these piece by piece because there are some important arguments here, and you take those very seriously, which is what I appreciate so much from your piece. You don't just dismiss them offhand. Let's go back to the first one. He it seems that Beecham is pointing to a certain paradox that. Many nations in Western Europe are, on the one hand, home to robust welfare states, and on the other hand, have very strong ascendant right-wing nationalist movements. You can look at Geert Wilders in that context as one of the most uh, ravenously fascist, neo-fascist uh, types of guys in Europe, uh, or even the Front National uh, with Marine Le Pen in France, and of course, uh, UKIP um, in Great Britain, uh, having some success in the last few years, and particularly with the Brexit vote. So what do you say about this paradox uh, between, on the one hand, Western Europe being a very strong social democratic enclave in the world, but at the same time having uh, this ascendant right-wing nationalist movement? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple points that can be made about that. And um, you know, there were two really excellent pieces, uh, one by Ryan Cooper in The Week and another by uh, Marshall Steinbaum, I believe, uh, in Jacobin, uh, sort of taking issue with, with two aspects of this argument. One is that Beecham's definition of, of social democracy is a very narrow one. Um, <clears throat> he discusses correlations between the, the amount of social spending and the size of the welfare state um, and these right-wing nationalist movements. But he doesn't at all consider the effects of labor market policy, you know, of the, the extent to which, um, you know, these countries are running full employment economies, nor about, you know, whatever antitrust, a whole range of other issues that, that would affect left-wing policy. Right. Um, and the other thing is that he doesn't, uh, the, I believe that the 2008 financial crisis is not mentioned anywhere in the piece, nor is there any acknowledgement that there was any change at all in the um, in the, the policy programs of these social democratic parties between 1945 and 2016, uh, whereas you know you you had like here like in like in Britain uh, you know a, a worldwide turn to the right after the inflationary crisis in the 1970s, and, and so yeah, just uh, basically austerity is is wiped from the picture as there's questions about unemployment. Right. So it seems that Beecham is covering over this really intense historical transformation that we see from, say, the 1950s and 60s. It's the golden era of uh, northern Western capitalism, right, following World War II, although it wasn't very golden for many other uh, darker folks across the world, as we know. But in, in the United parts of the United States and Western Europe, we experienced this post-war economic miracle, which enabled uh, a lot of the, the subterranean struggle from the labor movement and communist and social de democratic parties to to reap the fruits of a strong robust welfare state in the 50s and 60s but that all started to unravel in the 1970s as you mentioned and then of course in 1980s uh, very famously margaret thatcher and ronald reagan ushered in this new neoliberal regime uh, so it seems like beecham is certainly covering over uh, much of that history in a way that that is, is quite dangerous, I think, uh, because it essentializes the notion that uh, white folks who may or may not be attracted to social democratic policies are necessarily, you know, racist against uh, immigrants. And, and I think that's a historical development that we need to talk about. And so we get to number two, Jeremy Corbyn. 
uh, has applied the Sanders model in the British Labour Party, and he failed. Uh, what do we say to that? Yeah, I think um, one, one obvious counter is that we're looking at, at one example. Beecham does not acknowledge that there are these left wing parties, you know, most notably, and obviously it's a more extreme crisis. Um, but in, in Greece, Syriza won power, this this fringe party that was, was not a force in politics, uh, specifically by, you know, uh, advocating for a strong anti-austerity left wing platform. And, and that brought them to power. Obviously, things did not go as uh, happily as uh, its supporters might have liked, but nonetheless, uh, and similarly in Spain, um, with Podemos, uh, did not get power, but, but but exploded in size by moving to the left in this context. So I I think that to, whatever, I, I think that, that Corbyn is is one example, but he does not entertain, uh, you know, other examples that would uh, comport less well with his thesis. And then there's also the fact that there was a concerted effort on the part of much of the Labour Party to undermine Corbyn's leadership uh, from the very beginning, which you know is not going to be very uh, it's not going to uh, be very helpful to uh, whatever. I just think that you need to isolate the variables of Jeremy Corbyn's program, mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn's personality and skills as a political uh, operator. Uh, and the context in which Jeremy Corbyn took power and the support that he did not have from the party, that these are, are separate variables. And to use Jeremy Corbyn as the example and the sort of referendum on whether or not an economically left platform uh, can work in the context of you know this current moment in Western politics, uh, I think is, is not the fairest treatment of the, the argument. Well said. Well said. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, going back to the first point that we just talked about there, the British Labour Party underwent some very serious uh, uh, neoliberal style transformations in the 1990s under Tony Blair and his third way politics. And Corbyn seems to be fighting this intra-party battle uh, that that Beecham um, and his followers seem to just, you know, conveniently gloss over. And I think that's that's a big problem. So, this sort of essentialism of, 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 you know, not interrogating certain historical transformation plays out in the third uh, piece that you've mentioned, which is that uh, far-right parties don't draw the bulk of their support from working-class voters, but rather from the petty bourgeoisie. So, therefore, the kind of voter who's attracted to the far-right just doesn't care about inequality and redistribution. What do we say to that? I think that there are a few things. I think... Uh I think this is one of the, the weakest points in, in his argument when applied to the American context, um, because Donald Trump, you know, could not have been elected without the support of, of working class voters, uh, particularly working class white voters. He performed 16 points better against Hillary Clinton uh, among voters who made under thirty thousand uh, dollars, according to exit polls, than Romney did versus Obama. So this was a, a, a major shift um, with lower income voters uh, from the left to the right. And, and Beecham is absolutely correct that, um, at least in my understanding, that uh, the base for this kind of uh, far right nationalism tends to be the, the petty bourgeoisie. And, you know, a fact that's often elided in a lot of the discussion about Trump is that, uh, well, these white working class voters were indispensable um, in, in delivering his margin, particularly in this Midwestern states, you know, it's rich people that, that elected Donald Trump, uh, you know, that, uh, he, he could not, 
the majority of his support, you know, does come from from the affluent. But but this does not, I don't think, do the the work that Beecham thinks it does as an argument. Um, mm-hmm. Because if if the petty bourgeoisie is the natural constituency for right wing nationalism, then the white working class voters who Trump needs in order to win are unnatural constituents for it. Um, and if so, then the Democrats should obviously be playing for those voters because they don't actually, uh, you know, this isn't the kind of politics that normally uh, would appeal to them. So obviously there's been an aberration here and, and, and we can win them back. Uh, but in a separate part of his piece, he says that um, if social Democrats see their future as a competition for votes with right wing populists, then they have two choices, lose the election or lose their progressive identity. Um, and so he seems to argue that the Democrats, you know, that the liberal progressive parties in general should should not even try to win over the kinds of voters who would be attracted to right-wing populists, um, and so who would be attracted to Trump. Uh, and yet, you know, if, if these working-class voters are not natural Trumpists, then surely we should be going after them. So it seems to, it's his argument seems to rely on the fact that there's just this sort of essential nature of certain petty bourgeois and white working class elements that just sort of they're inherently racist and and and, and as as though it doesn't have a history it doesn't have a sort of like structural uh, causation any any form of structural causation right they, they can't be sort of undone yeah and you know maybe we'll get to this but you know I think um, Matt Brunig really highlighted this point uh, fairly well I think in a medium poster. Mm-hmm. Whatever, but but just uh, you know, if you do accept this this seeming essentialism, then again, it, it, there's a tension between Beecham's descriptive argument and his prescriptive one, um, because if it is the case that you know that this sizable portion of the white population or any dominant ethnic majority population is going to you know inherently react against the influx of others or you know or or the demands of a minority within their polity, then it, it becomes almost an argument for separatism and uh, for restricting immigration because clearly it's corrosive to civil society. Um, and, and yet at the same time that Bisham seems to be arguing that descriptively, he is very much insistent that uh, to restrict immigration uh, would be to betray the core of progressivism and that this is an unacceptable and an uncontemplatable option. Um, and, and so it's, it's hard to square these two ideas. Right. So I, what you, you seem to be arguing, uh, correctly in my view that, uh, his prescription, uh, doesn't fit the values and policies that he, he seems to espouse himself. And I think, you know, this absurdity plays itself out brilliantly in a piece. I don't know if you saw it. It was last week. It's been, uh, you know, discussed quite a bit on, uh, you know, on social media and whatnot, but it's by Kevin Baker. From March 9th, he wrote about Blue Exit. It's a modest proposal for separating blue states from red. And so this is sort of like separatist uh, secessionary logic that flows from that kind of contradiction that you just pointed to. The contradiction of prescription and, and espoused policies and beliefs. Yeah. I mean, I think that Baker piece has a whole host of, uh, I mean, I, I guess he treated it satirically, but but it does right. run into this problem um, of, you know, that there are poor black and, and brown people in these poor red states um, who would be, yeah, just any idea that, that, you know, liberals or progressives need to just write off 
these you know states that are just irredeemably reactionary mm-hmm. and racist is is a call to uh, you know abandon the most vulnerable people in American society, um, which you know are poor minorities living under uh, you know reactionary rule in, in, in impoverished southern states. Right, and we can look to uh, some of the pieces that came out. Uh, some of the more disgusting pieces that came out after Trump's victory, blaming the coal miners in West Virginia uh, for for Trump's win, and 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 celebrating the fact that these folks would be losing their health care under Trump. I mean, this really nasty, like liberal reaction to this. But but we can look at, at more sophisticated, scholarly approaches uh, that that espouse very similar types of uh, arguments. And Richard Florida, who is a very you know prominent urban theorist, has recently argued. Argued that you know the the liberal left needs to pull out of rural and southern America and sort of concentrate on focusing in these sort of like cultural political meccas of like say New York City, Miami, um, you know, the left coast and, and those types of things. And so it seems to me that we've really pointed to the source of this absurdity with this secessionary logic, and that the prescription that you mentioned is totally uh, separated from the types of policies that they allegedly believe in this sort of multicultural, liberal, woke collective. Yeah, I mean, I want to be fair to, I mean, one of the main arguments in my piece is that that Beecham doesn't actually specify what his answer is. I mean, his his piece is titled, No Easy Answers, uh, Why Left-Wing Economics uh, Will Not Defeat Right-Wing Populism, I believe. Mm-hmm. Is not the answer to right wing populism, um, but you know the closest he gets to providing a non easy answer is, is uh, the following: If Democrats really want to stop right wing populists like Trump, they need a strategy that blunts the true drivers of their appeal, and that means focusing on more than economics. And so it's it's not clear to me what what that means uh, at all, mm-hmm. um, since in in his piece the the true drivers of right wing populism are mass non-white immigration, white racial resentment, and possibly strong social safety nets that allow white voters to prioritize cultural concerns over economic ones. Um, but as I've already said, uh, you know, Beecham, uh, and I agree with him on this, you know, believes that it is really a, a human rights issue to take in refugees, to have a expansionary um, immigration policy, and for, for developed nations to take in dispossessed people from underdeveloped ones that, you know, they are complicit in, uh, sort of the underdevelopment of, um, but so, so he doesn't want to tackle that true driver. Um, it also seems doubtful that he wants to, he believes that Democrats should focus on destroying the welfare state to force white voters to be less racist because otherwise they'll starve to death. Um, that seems like probably not what he's advocating. Um, and so he does seem to believe, I think that, um, that anti-racist education, uh, and, and, uh, directly, like, I, I do think that he does have a prescription here, but he doesn't spell it out very much. And it's really hard to see how it would be effective. But, but I believe his answer, um, you know, w- which I mentioned in the piece that he has a lot of fondness for, um, he sees Canada as a model, which I, I believe that you have, uh, possibly more expertise on than I do, but, but basically the idea that Canada has been somewhat aberrant in its reaction to the refugee crisis. It has been much more open to taking people in. Um, and he sees this as a product of deliberate policy interventions by the Canadian government to instill uh, multicultural values in the population. Um, and he thinks that, uh, you know, when the left focuses exhaustively on the idea that it can combat intolerance in, in, in society through redistribution, 
um, that it's missing these other potential ways of, you know, combating it at its source. And I'm actually somewhat agnostic on the, the policy question here. You know, the, the things that he cites that Canada did all sound perfectly fine from, from my perspective. Uh, you know, they include whatever, uh, running language, free language classes for new Im- immigrants and citizenship classes and uh, not uh, using guest worker programs. So you don't have this uh, exploited, like, quasi-citizen population. These sound like fine things to me. But I don't really understand how that translates into an electoral strategy which is ostensibly the purpose of his piece. His piece is arguing that Bernie Sanders is wrong. The path back to power is not through economic populism, um, which is a you know political strategy. So anyway, uh, so I think he has some kind of, he, he, I, I don't want to rule out the possibility that he has some not totally logically inconsistent mm-hmm. prescription with his description, but, but I, I don't see it. So there's something there, but he seems to be missing. So I, to me, so I just, as you were talking, I jotted down three sort of things I think that, that really uh, underlie uh, the problems with his approach. It's not so much the argument, I would argue, but it's the approach. And I think th- these are really the touchstones of, of sort of liberal political weakness in this moment. The first one is, okay, what is, I mean, and I, I certainly, I, this may or may not be outside of your purview. I'm sort of foisting this on you. There are no easy answers for sure. But it's, the first one seems to be this complex relationship between race and class. Right. I mean, that's 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 really the question here is like, you know, we've talked we've been talking, uh, criticizing his race essentialism and things like that. And so that's sort of the underlying dynamic there. And that the the liberal progressive left doesn't really theorize this sort of like appearance of race and class well enough. Um, The second one is if we want to talk about immigration and the rise in immigration, particularly in Europe, we need to talk about the drivers of immigration, which are these sort of like imperialist interventions and wars uh, that we've sort of stoked in the Middle East and North Africa for the last, you know, uh, 10 or 15 some odd years. And and even before that, the third one is this sort of necessary connection between immigration and xenophobia and unemployment, that uh, unemployment in a poor economy uh, is going to cause folks to lash out at, uh, you know, and create scapegoats and things like that. In closing, one of the experience, things I experienced in Canada when I was there for a couple of years is that the free health care thing was always used in a really gross right-wing direction. It's like, well, you know, they come here and we should be nice to them, but we pay a lot of money because we have health care, and if they come in, you know, they'll somehow ruin that or whatever. And so on that level, Beecham is correct. Right. Like if you just look at the pure data, the pure data, which these quantitative political scientists want to raise um, in his piece on pure statistical measures, a robust welfare state does provide a lot of grist for the xenophobic mill, uh, to put it, you know, in, in some sense. Any yeah. thoughts on those three? I mean, I know I just threw a lot of stuff at you, but it seems yeah. to me that there's, it's, it's less of a problem of his arguments and, and more of a problem in the sort of like underlying sort of political theory even of like the sort of liberal political class. Yeah, well, I, I have a few thoughts on that. Uh, you know, one is that I think that maybe the most valuable thing that, you know, the American leftists who really have, um, you know, real ambivalence, uh, if not, you know, real antipathy for, for, for Beecham's piece. Uh, one, one thing that I think you can take from it is the insufficiency of Bernie Sanders' program. You know, I was thinking of this also last week, uh, you know, I think 
Chris Hayes on MSNBC had this town hall in, in West Virginia, uh, I guess part of a series in which Bernie Sanders appears in Trump country, um, you know, and has the uh, town halls with, with uh, you know, the real, the genuine working class Trump voters. They did one in Wisconsin. This one was in West Virginia, uh, West Virginia, uh, Cole County, McDowell County, I believe. That's um, right. uh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, his political style played very well in that room. Um, but, but it also, you know, you, you had, uh, this, this coal miner there who, you know, on the one hand, uh, asked whether the government, you know, should guarantee everybody healthcare. 100%, this guy, you know, Medicare for all made a hundred percent sense to him. Um, on the other hand, you know, he said that he hopes that we, mine coal until there's none left in the ground. Right, right. That was that was a cringeworthy moment, I think, for, for, for many of us. But but understandable in some senses. Yeah, yeah. But but by the end of it, you know, Sanders laid out, you know, what the world that he can see, you know, we're the wealthiest country uh in the history of the world. Everybody should have free health care. Everybody uh every kid who works hard enough should be able to go to college. Um and, you know, we should also invest in some infrastructure. Uh you know, I, I think all these things would would make life uh, somewhat better for, for, for these people, but it, it didn't actually address their core concern, which was the lack of jobs. That was what the coal miner, uh, mm-hmm. on one hand, said that he had this you know real fondness for mining coal. It was the purpose of his life, um, and on the other hand, said, well, yeah, if something else paid the same amount, that would be fantastic. I don't actually really like mining coal, like sort of, um, right. you know. It, I mean, w- w- what they like is the ability that I, you know, can provide for my family. I, I see. And, and I'm, I'm doing something that that has a social purpose. You know, it is, you know, obviously there's the climate aspect, but but ultimately these people are, you know, giving us electricity, and they 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 are doing a socially useful labor that supports them, supports their family, that gives them meaning. Um, having their healthcare bills picked up is not going to. It'll be very good, but but it doesn't satisfy that need. Uh, building some new highways that are probably not going to run through McDowell County is not going to satisfy that need. Um, and the, the education aspect, I think, is, is where Sanders sort of is still operating within kind of a, a, a very, uh, you know, traditional liberal paradigm um, that the path out of poverty is, is education, um, which, you know, absolutely we should have greater access to higher education. Um, but according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you know, I believe uh, I looked at this the other day and I could have these numbers exactly whatever the majority of jobs, the majority of new jobs in the economy that they expect that uh, this that the economy will produce in the next ten years, almost none of them require a college degree. It's, it's nursing assistance, you know. It's all these service sector work that does not require college degrees. And so, if we're going to have a middle class, those jobs need to pay better. Mm-hmm. Um, all of which is to say that I think that you know, from the left perspective, I would love to hear Bernie Sanders uh, talking about a federal job guarantee, or, right. or talking about something that actually directly addresses. Okay, I'm not just going to give you health care, but we're the richest nation in the world. There's all this work that needs to be done. The, we have old people that need to be watched. We have kids that need to be uh, have better daycare. The streets could be cleaner. The parks could be cleaner. So what we're going to do, everybody, everybody here, if uh, you know you apply, you come to work, you're going to get a job from the government. It's going to have health care. It's going to have this minimum salary that the private sector is going to have to compete with, whatever. Anyway, so I, I think that one point that you can take from Beecham's piece is that uh, it is genuinely true that what Sanders describes uh, does not really address I think the, the the driver of right wing populism. 
that's interesting, and I and I particularly appreciate that uh, hearing that on this show because uh, m- myself and many of our listeners are big Bernie fans of Bernie Sanders. Although I think I think many of us are fully aware of his limitations, but spelling them out, um, you know, in really specific ways as you just have is really useful to for for us to to sort of figure out how to go much further. I think most of us consider ourselves to the left of Sanders in, in, in many instances, but we champion the way that he's sort of handling more, you know, concrete, immediate uh, sort of political issues. But you've raised some really key uh, objections. Let's go back to this, 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 this tie between race and class. In the midst of the Brexit debates, there were a couple studies that came out of the UK, I believe, that showed that xenophobia and racism is actually not tied to one's proximity to racialized neighborhoods. And in fact, you know, so this, because the, 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 the ideology goes that all these sort of, you know, in, in the American context, the Hispanics uh, are taking our jobs. In, in the UK context, it's, it's the Muslims are taking our jobs. But it, this study shows that the people who are the most xenophobic and the most racist are actually the ones who live in the more lily-white neighborhoods. So it's kind of there's this phantasmic, phantasmic threat uh, of of immigrants in people's heads, which seems to show that attending to pure class based needs will not address that sort of phantasmagorical threat. Uh, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I mean, you know, I do think that it's that there is you know, like the term vulgar Marxism exists for a reason that I, you know, think that material analysis explains an awful lot. Uh, but I think that human beings do have non-material needs as well. And the the figure of the scapegoat satisfies a lot of psychological needs and human beings, you know, are liable to, to scapegoat others and to define, uh, you know, define themselves and, and bolster their own self-image uh, and the, their group self-image um, by creating phantasms that, you know, allow them creating another to define themselves against. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I do think that independent of class concerns, that this is a, a dynamic that human beings are vulnerable to uh, falling into um, that I think we both, I, I think, agree that gets exacerbated uh, amidst scarcity but but is not uh, it, you know can still exist in, in times of abundance and can still exist among people who occupy privileged class positions uh, and that do not in fact have you know rational economic anxieties uh, from our perspective. So the rationality argument there that that's a really great place for us to switch to the section in your piece where you speak to this uh, one of the most celebrated works in political science of this past year. Uh, it's titled Democracy for Realists. It's by Larry Bartels and Christopher Aiken. Is that correct? Aiken? Christopher? I, I never got that correct. But by I Bar- think it's Aiken. By Bartels and Aiken, Democracy for Realists. And they argue that social identities drive voter behavior more than any other force. So while you know the people like us who spend way too much time debating and talking about politics online, uh, you know, while we have well-formed ideologies, the normies out there uh, do not. And they rely on other sorts of other sources of identity. And that's become that argument's become very popular in the last couple of years. How do you think that's influencing Beecham in this piece? Um, yeah, I, I'm not actually 100 percent sure. It is actually, you know, it is a very popular book uh, among um, the Vox contingent. 
writ large. And I think it's a very valuable book uh, that has um, mm -hmm. uses to, I mean, w w one of the key um, arguments of the book is that so much political punditry and political analysis is, is really detached from what social science tells us about voter behavior. Um, and specifically, there's this idea, uh, what he, they call the spatial voting theory, which is that there's this American public and its opinions move uh, from left to right across a spectrum. Um, and, you know, the two parties compete for the median voter. You know, you want to capture your side and you want to capture the center. Um, and that, uh, you know, the reason why George McGovern and Barry Goldwater lost landslide elections is because, uh, you know, uh, McGovern went too far to the left. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he lost the median voter and Goldwater went too far to the right. And, and their argument is that uh, ideological extremity is um, uh, may have a negative effect, but it, it's vastly overrated and that the McGovern and Goldwater losses can be explained both from uh, the performance of the economy at the times that they were running, as well as uh, a lot of other factors, uh, both for empirical reasons and for theoretical reasons. And you know, if you actually think about you know, it's just fundamentally not the case that American voters have coherent ideological positions. So, you know, for one thing, you, you don't have a single dimensional plane because you have, uh, there are so many people in this country who are totally cool with Medicare, Social Security, would welcome more government spending uh, on the elderly, more government spending on health care, and also maybe don't want gay people to teach in public schools. Right, uh, right. You know, I mean, like, th there's no social and religious and economic conservatism uh, versus liberalism, there's no intrinsic reason why one person would hold any of these one views. And so just to start out with, there's that. There's the other fact is that most voters don't even know really what the positions uh, uh, with any detail don't understand the policies that they're, they're, they're don't understand most of the policies that are being addressed and in, in national political campaigns don't emphasize issues very much outside of maybe one or two. And so anyway, the the point is that the, the the boundaries of debate are set very much on the elite level and voters very much respond so that the reason why you have at least the appearance of, of a decent number of coherent conservatives is because there's a large number of Republicans who their social identity is that I am a Republican and they hear Republican elites tell them what they're supposed to believe to be a Republican and then they adopt these positions. Right. Um, so, you know, he, he looks at uh, one way they substantiate this is like during George W. Bush's campaign um, in 2000, uh, Social Security privatization had not been a major issue for a little while um, in terms of like the front of a political campaign. Um, and Republicans broadly were against Social Security privatization at the beginning of that campaign. But it was core to George W. Bush's messaging and connected, you know, if you're a Republican, you support this. And by the end of the campaign, uh, Republicans were, were much more favorable towards um, Social Security privatization. And we saw a similar thing with Trump, where uh, Republicans, I believe, were, were more in favor of free trade than Democrats were um, the year before Trump ran. Uh, and by the end of Trump's campaign, Republicans were very far more um, anti-free trade. And so anyway, the, the elites are determining to a, a very large extent uh, what the boundaries of debate are which is a useful thing to, I think, the left. And I, I think that the, the dry empiricism of, of Bartels and Aiken's work um, is, uh, is useful. But anyhow, uh, applying it to, to Beecham's work, um, you know, Bartels and Aiken argue that, that how people actually operate then is that, you know, they have strong senses of group identities, that it isn't all... The, the other thing that he argues is that um, 
that they argue is that a lot of the model of political science is taken from this, you know, sort of neoliberal economic model of, you know, individual utility maximizing individuals who have preferences and express them uh, based on, you know, which politician maximizes my ideological, you know, values, um, mm-hmm. which is not how they operate. The market of ideas uh, thesis. Exactly, right, exactly. Right. Uh, whereas people are social beings. And so they're, it, it's less about individual than about the group they identify with. So they look at a politician, they look at the message, and maybe they look at, you know, a couple policies, but, but the, the question that drives, that seems to drive behavior based on, you know, their analysis of, of voting behavior o- over, you know, multiple centuries, um, you know, is, uh, social identity. Um, and the thing is that voters possess many different social identities at once. Um, you know, any individual might identify with a religious group, a line of work, an ethnic heritage, a socioeconomic background and a gender. Um, and so a, a large part of what politicians compete over in a political campaign is what identity do they want to make most salient? Um, you know, uh, in, you know, I would argue that, uh, and I think this is, you know, actually a popular argument among Vox writers generally, that the Clinton-Trump race really uh, centered identities um, and feelings about uh, uh, multiracial, uh, multiracial society, multicultural society versus, uh, you know, whiteness um, to a degree that the Obama-Romney race did not, uh, irrespective of, of Obama's, uh, you know, actual personal racial identity. Um, but so... And this is, you know, to a certain extent, what what Beecham is arguing when he says that uh, if we push for more left wing policies, you're going to activate this white reaction because whites don't like to redistribute to non-whites. You know, he's saying that if you do, if you push for like single payer health care or something that's majorly redistributive, you're going to activate the white identity and they are going to, you know, uh, we're going to have white reaction. But it would seem that, uh, you know, not making a redistributive argument, but instead focusing on multiculturalism, focusing on making a positive argument against racism would all the more prime that identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my basic argument is that the, the Romney-Obama race, uh, if you look at how Obama ran that race and how he was able to retain the Democratic constituency among white workers in the Midwest, he, he framed the race very much in class terms. You can object to Obama's agenda uh, you know, from the left, uh, there's a lot of, you know, the, the moves that he made, especially in 2011 towards austerity. But but his messaging in 2012 was a, a class message. It was Mitt Romney, you know, is the guy who fired all your dads. Uh, he's the private equity uh, embodiment of the, the force that came into these towns and took away the good jobs. And by centering that class message, uh, the a lot of these, at least these counties, you know, we don't know about how much voters, whether there was people stayed at home versus come out. But nonetheless, he got white workers in these states to vote on the basis of their class identity. Whereas in in 2016, you know, arguably Clinton, I I think, had a more progressive economic agenda on paper on her website. But uh, her message was, you know, Stronger Together was about reject Trump's vision of America. It was, uh, you know, about reject Trump's bigotry. And that combined with Trump really putting race, you know, at the forefront of his campaign, I think that we, what we saw was that white workers voted more on the basis of their racial identity and more on the basis of their feelings about Black Lives Matter and their feelings about, you know, the decline of white demographic dominance. Right. I think this would be a good time. I'm going to 
play devil's advocate a little bit. I think, although I think we're probably in broad agreement on this, uh, to unpack some of these uh, claims. I think, uh, you know, Bartels and, and Aiken raised some really important things for us to think about how people think through their own identities and, and how they vote and things like that. I think <laughs> maybe all of us or some of us, the most, let me backtrack. The way that this often presents itself is when maybe I'm talking to a friend and they just went on a date, right? And the date's going really well. They're talking about Bernie Sanders. Oh, you're a Bernie, you know, I'm a Bernie bro. You love Bernie. This is great. Everything's going well. We agree about everything. And then they're like, yeah, but those, man, those, I got to tell you what, those, those Mexicans are really taking our jobs, aren't they? And it's like, you know, the record scratches across the room. Everybody freezes. Uh, a baby starts crying. Uh, and you're like, oh my God, you know, I thought we were in agreement, but then you have these other sort of really reactionary beliefs that are sort of operating under the surface that I didn't anticipate. So people's, you know, political identities are not, are not, um, are not cohesive in the way that we like to assume Did, did I get the argument more or less correct there? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah. I, people have mul- multiple identities uh, that can be activated uh, politically. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So our first episode, we had Seth Ackerman on to talk about his case for a, a, a third party in the United States, a, which would essentially be a, a labor party in the U.S. And we talked about how political parties are responsible for shaping the ideology and the political policies of their constituencies. And so the concern that I have is that that the Bartels and Aiken uh, sort of position doesn't account for how these preferences are developed and how they change through, you know, uh, alterations in, say, like elite formations such as political parties. Right. And I think that this played out. You mentioned that Hillary uh, focused more on identity over, say, politics. And that seems to map onto the recent study that came out two weeks ago that uh, showed that 80 percent of her ads were attack ads on Trump's personality, whereas 20 percent were uh, attacks on his policies, which is the uh, mirror image of, of or the, the sort of the, the sorry, the reverse image of, of what that usually is. It's usually 80, 20 policies to personality. But the Clinton campaign flipped that. Um, so is there a way that that was a failure in? I mean, can we argue that that was a failure in Clinton's strategy in essentializing certain preferences to like essential identity features rather than trying to a la Sanders win those folks away from those identity features. Did that make sense? I, I think so. I mean, I think that I feel like there's a inherent, you know, if, if you're going to try to make something, if you're going to treat political behavior as an object of scientific study, then you're going to want, there's a, it's going to be difficult not to, I guess, reify certain patterns because, you know, the sort of nature of what you're doing is saying, okay, here is the historical behavior here is the pattern. It's a tool for predicting behavior, and, and that does, to a certain extent, almost inherently, I guess, uh, oppose novelty. Limits dynamism, right? You necessarily have to limit some dynamism. I mean, this is in the hard sciences as well. We see this. I mean, it's sort of a necessity. So you're right to draw attention yeah. to that. Um, but 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 generally, I, yeah, I think that, um, again, I don't think that uh, their framework is inconsistent with um, saying that, that Clinton— made a mistake, uh, as far as not emphasizing, you know, now I, I, w- I do want to make one caveat, which is that, you know, Donald Trump has a horrendous personality. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it's an easy target, right? Yeah. It's not a totally illogical thing to say, uh, you know, the, the guy, uh, you know, the 
whatever pussy grabbing con artist like shouldn't be president because he's a pussy grabbing con artist and we don't really need to argue about anything right. else like let's just establish that this man is a a crazy sociopath uh who you know uh, assaults if not rapes women and uh you know that should be enough i, I mean i understand why they they would have taken that tack and i do think that there is a decent amount of empirical evidence to suggest that if you know Anthony Weiner didn't send a, a sext of himself with like a, a child and that didn't lead to the FBI getting a hold of his laptop and James Comey didn't decide to publish a letter about this finding, uh, you know, a little over a week before the election that uh, the Clinton strategy would have worked. Um, so she might so have something. just she might have just squeaked by in that in that case. Right. Yeah. You still have the argument that this is she was going up against the pussy grabbing con artist, uh, most unpopular major party nominee in history. This should not have been close. Um, yeah. I think that's the, the way to preserve the, the broader attack on her campaign. I think that's I think that's a fair pushback. What do you make of some of the more uh, conspiracy? Potentially conspiracy theories that have circulated saying that the Clinton campaign um, gave Trump a nudge during the Republican Party primaries in order to sort of have an easy target to take down during the general election. I I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence for that. I I, Mm -hmm. I think that, like, it is pretty standard for, um, you know, for major parties to to scope out the potential competition. To scope out and encourage the the, the more vulnerable primary mm-hmm. uh, challenger on the other side who seems less electable. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think that they made any decisive difference. And I also don't actually, I don't know that I find it morally problematic, even if they, they, they tried to, to, to be honest. Um, I, uh, I, I, the Republican Party is a retrograde, dangerous political organization that, yeah that decreases their chances of taking power i think uh you know and, and, and we maybe were totally wrong but i was under the presumption you know during that 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 trump's nomination was going to keep the republican party out of power and that marco rubio's nomination very likely would mean that it would be in power and so from that perspective back then i was you know perfectly well, it got complicated as Trump's campaign wore on and it became a hate campaign more and more ex- explicitly and, and viciously. But um, nonetheless, you have to you have to weigh that against, you know, whatever. If you think that that the party that denies the existence of climate change and that wants to throw people, you know, that wants to decimate what little we have of a safety net, if his rise is going to keep them out of power, it becomes a very complicated moral question. So I don't really blame the Clinton campaign. If they did try to elevate him, I blame them for not fucking defeating him. Right. right, right. So let's, let's give Hillary a a break on that. As you've rightfully pointed out, I think there's a deeper sort of thing and this is going to, maybe this will take us to the conclusion of your piece and we can sort of wrap things up uh, with this thread by following it. Is it possible that, Although we can excuse the Clinton campaign for going after Trump's atrocious personality, is it possible that they had to go that route? Because that wing of the Democratic Party is really hamstrung on the types of policies that they are either ideologically or materially inclined to offer their base. Right. Such as universal uh, single payer, universal health care, such as, you know, um, increased union protections, the types of things that their base is is really 
crying for these neoliberals in the mainstream you know wing of the democratic party are uninclined to offer those policies and so that going after his personality was a way to divert attention from the from from the fact that clinton was in many cases to the right of even obama who had an atrocious eight years uh, economically for for much of the country do you think there's something to that you know i think it's um it's hard to there's a lot of things going on and it's hard to separate the strands so you got on the one hand like the clintons do come of age uh you know uh whatever i think volunteering on the mcgovern campaign living through reagan and it's not implausible to me that they really did internalize this idea that we are a center-right nation and the left has to tiptoe its way to to power whatever that they they they, you know they drink that they, they believe in this pragmatically um I think it's also entirely uh, reasonable to assume that they're the fact that they're, you know, the, 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 the part of society that they operate in, their comfort around the financial titans that run the world strongly suggests that they have some ideological sympathy for the, the worldview of Lloyd Blankfein and the Davos crowd, which is uh, not, you know, exactly Bernie Sanders crowd. But I, I do think that uh, I do think that there is this real tension within the Democratic Party. Um, it's the left-wing party in American politics, and it's increasingly reliant on affluent voters. You know, since '92, you know, uh, Barack Obama in, in 2008 won with voters who make above uh, 200,000, and he only narrowly, I believe, lost them in, in, in 2012. Whereas I think, uh, you know, Bill Clinton in '92 got a much smaller percentage of those, and, and the, the Democratic coalition was much more downclass. But it has been steadily for for decades trading uh, lower class whites to the Republican Party uh, and then making a refuge for the moderate suburbanites who want abortion to be legal, who've been uh, freaked out by the rise of the the Christian and and nationalist right. And so you you saw, I think, that reflected during the primary. Hillary Clinton ran on uh, a promise not to raise taxes on anybody who makes less than $250,000. And this was the the core reason why she could not support single payer health care. Um, well, I mean, she, she does not want to raise taxes on people who make under $250,000 and she doesn't want to like embrace, like totally reject the deficit uh, hawkery or the idea that, that a balanced budget is generally good or something. So she wants to pay for her proposals and she doesn't want to raise taxes on people who make between, you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That severely limits what you're going to be able to do when you also want to fund the largest military in the world. Right. And so I do think that the the reliance, the increasing reliance for the Democrats on suburban voters, you know, who aren't to a person voting strictly their material interests, uh, but generally speaking, are not big fans of paying higher taxes. I think that does constrain what Clinton can do. In, in terms of policy, I still don't think that that, like I said before, Obama in 2012 ran a populist campaign without really a, a especially populist agenda. Hillary Clinton, if you look at on paper, she was for card check for unions. She was for a public option and Medicare buy-in. So basically lowering the Medicare age down to 55. She was for free college for all working class kids. I mean, she had, a, if she wanted to dress that up as a populist agenda, she could have done so. Uh, mm-hmm. She she chose to downplay that. Um, I think in, in a somewhat conscious bid to continue to grow the affluent wing. And you can argue 
about the motivations of that, whether that was based strictly on a pragmatic decision that these were the voters that were most gettable against Trump versus one could argue that the tension between the Democratic donor class and its voting base is going to be smaller the richer the voting base gets. Uh, so whatever, you, you, you can interpret uh, generously or suspiciously the motivations, um, but it, it's one potential factor. Right. As we know, um, uh, Tom Perez was recently elected uh, to or appointed, I should say, <laughs> wasn't much of an open election, but appointed to the DNC uh, chair uh, last week. And so there's been an intra-party conflict to sort of fight back against the left wing of the party. And one of the mo- more charitable uh, interpretations of that fight is uh, is the fact that the 2012 or sorry, the 2018 rather midterm elections are uh, broadly going to be happening primarily, I think, in the West Coast, where those affluent Democrats uh, primarily reside, I think. Um, if you look demographically, the, the, the Democratic base is far more affluent in the West, where these elections will be held in 2018. And so the Neera Tandons and the Clinton uh, surrogates are saying, you know, well, we can't offer this, you know, radical left-wing populist message to a bunch of affluent Californians and expect them to come out uh, and take back uh, the Senate and the the House in 2018. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to quarrel. It's hard to quarrel with that on some levels, but I think you know, I think we do have to to push on that a little bit. Yeah, I think that you know, it's it's a bad you know because. Ultimately, ultimately, you know, the, the progress we can make on, on racial justice and gender equality, we can make important progress on those those fronts. But 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 they'll always be somewhat superficial without, uh, you know, a, a significant redistributive element, you know, in a society as unequal as ours and one in which women and, and you know, uh, racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately represented among the lower echelons of the economy mm-hmm. um and so you know so, so there is this very real if we can't get put together a coalition that is willing to support the kind of measures that are needed to uh restrain corporate power distribute uh you know income wealth and, and, and control you know that that's a really profound loss and i think that's one thing that is elided getting back to beecham's piece where he sort of argues that you know, progressives, a populist party, an economically populist party starts to play to the racial resentments of the right, then you've lost your progressive identity. And it's sort of unacceptable, even if in his analysis, that could actually, that maybe ostensibly could could work, because he's saying that the real, the basis of this is is racism, not economics. Um, But he says that's unacceptable, because it's a loss of progressive identity. Um, And the thing is that, you know, one could, I think that's maybe where some of not an outrageous ideology, but an ideology starts to show through because one could argue that failing to support more redistributive economic policies is a loss of progressive identity because it is a betrayal of the vulnerable. So I think that that's all, you know, very real. At the same time, we are a country, I think, where what's the unionization rate right now? Like under 11%, I think. It's around there. Yeah, union density is around 11%, I believe. Yeah, it's very hard to build a working class politics in a country with a, a, a union rate like that. And, and uh, in a country with a politics like the one we have right now, where, uh, you know, as I've said, the working class is polarized by race into two different political parties. Uh, 
extent than it has been for you know decades. And if that's going to be the case, if you're going to have people whose material interests you know are aligned in separate political camps, it's very hard to make the axis of politics in a two-party system class because that that just whatever there's tensions within each party, not between them. Anyhow, so I, I do think that it is this real problem. And, and I do think there is a pragmatic argument, you know, that the Democratic Party, where we are right now, we need these damn, you know, uh, fiscally moderate, socially liberal suburbanites. Um, and, and not that they're necessarily uniformly uh, of that view, but nonetheless, there is this contingent that, that right now we need them in the popular front against Trump. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, but but there are real costs to that. And I think that the the challenge for the left is to figure out, you know, how how you can build a cross-racial working-class politics in this country. Um, you know, it's not an easy answer, but it is, you know, I think probably the only answer to, to actually uplift the most vulnerable people in, in our country. Well said. I think you spell out the problem uh, quite well there. I mean, there, there, there may be a little distance between the two of us in terms of to what extent focusing on universal social programs can foster sort of like uh, cross and multiracial solidarity um, am, I, am I reading that correctly? I mean, do you, is it is it true? I mean, are are you do you join Beecham and his uh, skepticism that universal social programs sort of foster a new sort of like uh, political you know new forms of political solidarity? Because I think that's what Bernie Sanders' political revolution that he talks so much about was really trying to attempt to do. And that whereas the Clintonites are focusing on fighting over uh, the, the crumbs, you know, of, of voters, so to speak, who, who tend to come out, Sanders wants to sort of create a new constituency um, and create new identities. And he thinks that these policies can do that. Um, what do you make of that argument? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, uh, like I said, so I think that, that class identity... It's not a, it's not, class consciousness in the United States is, is not where I would like it to be, is not where it would be convenient for it to be for left-wing politics, but I reject the idea that, that, that the project of trying to build that consciousness is hopeless. Like I said, you know, in, in 2012, Obama, just through, you know, rhetoric and less through a real fulsome agenda, was able to get voters to... Uh, activate the class axis of their identity and to 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 vote on that. And I do think you know there have been really interesting moments in these Sanders town halls. There was one really telling one, uh, I thought, at um, his first one in Wisconsin, where there was this woman, I believe she was a factory worker named Gail, who was uh, just spitting fire about the undocumented. Um, ah, yes, good scene. She, uh, yeah, she. You know, they they come to this country, they take our jobs. She was saying that the, you know the undocumented, the reason why she hasn't sort of moved up the ladder like uh, where she works, and that they don't pay taxes when the tax bill comes, they go back to Mexico and hide, and they come back when the taxes are. I mean, like you know, sort of pretty fantastical stuff about these others who are are below her, who are you know ruining her life. Um, and one of the things that she expressed when she was complaining about these undocumented people was, uh, you know, what's going to happen to Medicare and Social Security, like you were talking about in Canada, these people are coming and they're stealing my benefits. And Sanders, uh, you know, sort of, I, I, if I remember correctly, he sort of you know, stopped her there and said, you know, well, we, we do need to protect Medicare and Social Security, and we need to expand whatever, and, and, you know, we're the richest country in the world, and, you know, all the income of the last two decades has gone to the top 1%, 
and, and don't you think that they need to pay more uh, into, you know, working people's Medicare and Social Security, you know, something along these lines. And she was like, you know, yeah, yeah, they do, because everything's gone to them. Um, and you saw that, you know, the us versus them that she was talking about, you know, she, she was still obviously filled with animus for the undocumented. But the them that was the, 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 the focal point uh, of her rage moved from the undocumented to the rich and moved from casting that rage downward to casting it upward. And the they became a class identity in that moment for her where she was saying, you know, we work hard and they get all the, the whatever. And in that moment, Sanders was doing the work of cultivating this identity that is, you know, class based and, and, and not uh, nativist or, or race based. And I think that, you know, that that's the hard work of politics that has potential and it, it just, you know, whether the left can, uh, can muster the resources to do the kind of, you know, whatever organizing, deep canvassing to, to build these identities that we, we need to build in order to muster our coalition remains to be seen. But I, I, I absolutely don't think that it's impossible. And I, I don't think that, uh, you know, that there are these calcified essential identities that white people have that, that make them committed to race above anything else. Uh, that's obviously not true. Wow. Very well said. I couldn't have said it any better myself for sure. Uh, so it's, it's really about, uh, changing the, the dividing lines in society. And in terms of, if you want to insert a class politics, we need to shift the other from the sort of, uh, you know, the phantasmagorical uh, immigrant, whether it's Muslim or uh, or otherwise, we need to start talking about uh, the class divisions. And so, yeah, well said. You've pushed me on a lot of issues. Um, I appreciate uh, the back and forth. Uh, the article is fantastic. Do you have any parting words for us in terms of conclusions? I think one of your main arguments is that Bosch, uh, uh, that Beecham does not offer a conclusion and that his, his argument necessarily prevents him from drawing an effective one or one at all. So what, if you could have finished Beecham's sentence <laughs> in the way that he wasn't able to, how, how would you have done that? I think you just spelled that out a little bit, but, but could you go further? Sure. You know, I mean, I, I, again, am, am agnostic about, you know, short term tactical, whatever, but, um, I, like I said, I, I do think that to, to really achieve what the progressive movement needs to do in order to provide a decent life um, and, and accomplish, you know, actually, you know, realize the basic values that I think everyone on the broad left generally at least likes to say that they, they support requires us to develop a class, a class politics, or at least a class consciousness to, to combat the people who are, you know, extracting vast sums of wealth from the rest of the population. I do think what one thought that I just had, you know, is that when you said about the dividing line, which I think is, you know, the real key, um, is I think that is one of the virtues that Sanders politics has, uh, is that it's a very clear story um, of who we are and who they are. It's the millionaire and the billionaire class, and it's us. And for all of the progressive policies that Clinton, you know, to the extent that she did adopt those, uh, and I think that they were real and they were there, um, her rhetoric, the story she told, the us versus them, uh, she's totally allergic to class politics, was not going to really, I mean, you know, in moments uh, on tax policy, but she's not really going to lean into that. Um, and so then what, what does the dividing line become? The dividing line becomes us and deplorables, right? Um, and I just don't think that that is as effective or, or broadly resonant 
uh, a dividing line to draw between the enlightened and the hateful. I don't, which seems to me to be the answer that comes from Beecham's piece is that we need to have a broad coalition of the woke. Right. And uh, I just don't think that there are enough enough of us uh, who are who are woke. And, and there are a lot of us, many more of us who are materially disadvantaged by the system. And if they can see their own oppression in uh, these other forms of oppression and form, you know, a broad coalition uh, of the dispossessed, that that is, um, along with a bunch of upper middle class allies like myself, uh, you know, that th- there's potential there. Well said. So it seems that we need to fight uh, this uh, tendency to to want to turn the Democratic Party into the neoliberal woke collective and uh, and focus on uh, more emergent possibilities for building uh, cross-racial and uh, working-class tactics, policies. Yeah, that'd be cool. Sounds good to me. Eric Levitz, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've given us a lot to think about. You've really pushed me, I know, and I, I hope you'll push our listeners as well. A lot of us are, are raving Sanders uh, supporters, but uh, we, we do acknowledge his limitations, and I think it's really important for us to, to think through uh, what that might look like Unfortunately, the old man is not going to be with us in the next 30 or 40 <laughs> years. We're going to have to take up the baton and, uh, and, and continue running with it. And so I think we uh, need to work on continuing to improve these policies and the message. And you've, you've really helped us uh, do that. So thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. And that's our show, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to tune in again next week on the Dead Pundit Society. We've got a great guest. It's going to be Matt Carp. Matt is a frequent contributor to Jacobin Magazine. He also has a book out called This Vast Southern Empire. It's a really great book. I'm going to be talking to him about that, the state of Southern politics in the United States, and so on and so forth. So don't miss it. Tune in next week. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you get a chance and you are so inclined and you are Captain Moneybags, by all means, think about donating to the show. I could sure use your help. Podcasts are expensive. Uh, Going over to patreon.com backslash deadpundits in order to become... Uh, a member of the society. Uh, you will not be receiving a membership card in the mail, and there are no perks. Uh, but you get to communicate with us, maybe you know, uh, post on the message board about what kind of guests you'd like to see. You can debate the politics of the show. You can tell me I'm an asshole. Whatever you'd like to do, it's up to you. So yeah, become a become a become a patron. I guess uh, on Patreon, a patron on Patreon, if you are so inclined. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Please enjoy Otis McDonald on your way out. Until next week, Dead Pundit, out. Otis, you crazy mother...